And welcome back everyone to One Step Beyond. My name is Aram Arslanian, and today we are going to be talking with Finn McKenty about bringing our whole selves to work. Now, it sounds like this really simple or maybe even complex topic. At the end of the day, it's not about giving people like the three steps of how to do this. It's really about understanding that to be who we really are requires a lot of self-reflection and a lot of discipline. So we're going to get into Finn's story and mine as well and talk about how we get there. So buckle up, because here we go. Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest is someone I'm really excited to have on the show, both because I really enjoy the ideas that he brings to the table and also because he's a personal friend of mine. So Finn McKenty, who is uh, someone that I've been following both personally and professionally for years, is going to join us. And today we're going to talk about bringing your whole self to work. So Finn, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Okay. Uh, and for our audience, this is our first time we're actually doing a remote show. So of course, we're all in various stages of lockdown. We can't see each other. Typically, we, well, not typically, always, we go to people or we have them join us because uh, I'm a firm believer in getting to sit with people, um, you know, be in the same space and share ideas. Of course, we can't do that right now. So Finn is the first person that we've decided we're going to try this remote with. And again, it has a lot to do with, we have a relationship, we know each other well. And also, this is someone that has just done so much incredible quality work online that we felt it was a really great place to start. So Finn, thanks for uh, being patient zero with us as we do our first remote podcast. And I'm really looking forward to everything that you're going to share on this topic of bringing your whole self to work. So before we get into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do today? Well, the thing most people probably know me for is I have a YouTube channel and a podcast. Podcast is new. YouTube channel has been around for a couple years. It is called The Punk Rock NBA. I'm at about 210,000 subscribers now, 17 or 18 million views, which is a lot of people have seen my dumb face and heard my horrible nerdy voice, which... It makes me a little psyched out every time I think about it. Um, but prior to that, I spent my career in marketing and design. So kind of at the intersection of creativity and driving business results. Uh, I worked in an online education company called Creative Live for a while. Before that, I was a designer and marketer for Abercrombie & Fitch. Before that, I spent a bunch of time in the agency world doing product development stuff like industrial design and engineering for primarily for Procter & Gamble, uh, like Swiffer and Febreze. And then before that, did a bunch of various just freelance design and video work since, you know, I was finally able to make my escape from the world of dead-end print shop jobs and do something I actually enjoyed for a living and fortunate to have been doing that for about 20 years now. Okay, cool. Very cool. Um, so as with a lot of my guests uh, on the show, one of the things that we share in common in a way that we met each other was through the punk scene. Um, what was your first introduction to punk? Well, let me give you two introductions because I think it happened in, in two, there's two key moments and I think that they matter. So the first introduction was 
from seeing suicidal tendencies on MTV news. If you remember back in like the eighties, they got banned from playing in LA because of like gang violence at their shows or whatever. And in 1989, they were allowed to play again. They did that um, like tower records appearance. That's the video for war inside my head. And I saw, I didn't know who they were, but I saw them on MTV news, like announcing that this band could play in LA now, be, you know, blah, 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 all that. And I didn't know who they were or whatever, but it just looked cool to me. It sounded dangerous, <laughs> which, you know, when you're 12 or 11 or however old I was, that seems really cool. Um, so I, I think I got my, I think I got some birthday money like that weekend or something. And I bought Lights, Camera, Revolution. And that was kind of my first introduction to the world of punk and metal and hardcore and all that stuff. So what I was just describing, the first version of this is, you know, the kind of mainstream version of punk, if you will, to the extent that that exists. When I discovered the underground DIY version of punk was when I bought this magazine called Maximum Rock and Roll at Tower Records in, I think, 92. And that's when I discovered that it wasn't just bands like Suicidal Tendencies, who were a major label band on MTV and all that stuff, and that's cool. But when I bought Maximum Rock and Roll, which was essentially like the the rolling stone of like underground punk and hardcore, that's when I realized like, oh my God, there's this actual worldwide network and community of people like me doing stuff from their basements and bedrooms and stuff like that and making fanzines and putting out records and doing all of that stuff that actually ended up being, you know, kind of my introduction to entrepreneurship, although I didn't know it at the time. Um, you know, to me, independent punk culture is a form of entrepreneurship with just sort of a different set of values and aesthetics and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, a record label, a DIY record label like yours, you know, it is entrepreneurship, although people would never use that word. So that was my introduction to the to version of punk and hardcore that I would say really became formative to me more so than, I mean, all that suicidal tendency stuff is great, but it, it, it was not personal. To, I wasn't part of that. I was an observer. I was, I became a participant in the second version of, you know, in that, in that DIY underground version of punk and hardcore. Um, so for anyone listening, the way that Finn and I know each other is uh, I played in a band for years and years and the drummer of this band, whose name was Todd and Todd introduced me to Finn. And when I met Finn, there was just something different about us. Like this is probably 1999, I would guess. Yeah, in that area, maybe 99, 2000. I think it was 2000, actually. And I believe I met you in the lineup uh, to El Corazon to go into some show. Sounds right. It seems like it to me. And I, I remember just meeting you and feeling there was, I don't, what I would have described at that time as like an edginess around you or like a little bit of a, it wasn't a, a guy that I instantly felt at ease with. I felt that there was like a deeper sense of like, analyzing things around you and of course like i at that point i was already a therapist so i instantly noticed this mm, and it made me interested but it also made me a little i don't want to say like anxious around you but it, i definitely was like this cat definitely is like looking at what's going on around him and is digesting it and taking it in and maybe you're thinking about it later but maybe you're not but you're not just looking at things from a surface level and that was my very first impression of hmm. you and so as we start to get to know each other a little bit more um, you have this zine. So for anyone who's uh, you know, new to this terminology, in the punk world, a zine, you know, short for magazine, is 
the way that we exchange ideas. And it's kind of the way that we take our verbal history, get it down on paper and share it or on screen now and share it with people I'm from generation to generation. And, you know, Finn was talking about maximum rock and roll, which was like, that's like the, you know, as he said earlier, the rolling stone of our scene. But the cool thing about punk and hardcore is like, literally anyone can make a zine, just like anyone can make a band. And what I love about punk and hardcore is like, it's just the most empowering thing for anyone who wants to do anything. Oh, I want to take photos. Now you're a photographer. Now right. I want to, now I want to take videos. Now you're a videographer. Now I want to play in a band. Now you're a musician, which is like the furthest stretch of any of those things. But hey, now I want to write about music. It's like, oh, well, now you're a music journalist. It's like, whoa, I'm just some kid like, who's making this stuff uh, at their house. That's the cool thing about it. It's just that idea. It's like, well, nobody has to give you permission. You just go and do that thing, which for me has been like the most valuable thing I got from punk. But I, I want to talk about this zine that you were doing at the time. I don't know if it was your first or anything about that. And I'd be I started doing them in like 92 or 93, like right after I found out about them and Max and Rock and Roll. I was like, oh, cool. I want to do this. And my early ones were absolutely horrible. But by then I had been doing them for like seven years. And so I'd gotten pretty good at it, I think, by then. Well, what was the drive for you to create zines? Like, what was it? Well, fundamentally, I just have a innate need to like make things or I get bored and antsy. Um, maybe you can put your therapist hat on someday and tell me what that's all about. But um, my mom tells me that when I was like three or two or something like that, I woke her up at like 4 a.m. and said, something to do, put hands. <laughs> so that's fundamentally, it's just how I'm wired. I don't know why. Um, but as far as why specifically zines, I've always been like motivated to document things that I feel are important, but not discussed enough. So back then I was into all these bands, um, which, you know, the, it's a super silly name, but the genre for these bands is called power violence. So these bands like capitalist casualties and man is the bastard and dystopia and stuff like that that nobody was writing about back then. I mean, still, they're not very well documented. But back then, like, there was like two zines on the whole planet that were like writing about this stuff. And I was really into it. And I was like, well, if nobody else is writing about these bands, I'm going to do it. You know, to your point earlier about the culture of punk being that you don't need or the idea of asking permission of anything is almost like heresy. <laughs> you know, not only do you not need permission, it's like, if you ask permission, that, that would be a faux pas. So I just said, well, I'm going to write about this stuff. And I don't really know how I realized that this was an option, but I just wrote a letter to like Mike from Capitalist Casualties, which was the first interview I ever did when I was like 14. And I was like, hi, I'm Finn. I'm 14 or whatever. I have this zine. Do you want to do an interview? And then two weeks later or whatever, I get a letter back from him because, again, this is 92. So we're doing everything with stamps. That was like, yeah, sounds good. Here's my phone number. Call me sometime. And I was like, oh, what? Oh. <laughs> you know, the guy in this band said I should just call him. <laughs> uh, but I did it, you know, to my credit, I guess. I think, I think, you know, maybe a lot of people freeze, they get the deer in the headlights kind of moment. And for better or for worse, I don't get that way. There's probably some times where I maybe should have, <laughs> but, right. uh, you know, for better or for worse, I just went for it. I interviewed him and that taught me a lot about business and just life in general is like, you know, you don't ask, you don't get, and you're not going to hear yes every time, but you got to put yourself out there, ask for what you want. And you'd be surprised how many times you do hear yes. 
Absolutely. Again, this is one of the most important things I've ever learned from uh, Punk. So the first for me was don't wait for permission. Like don't ask for permission. If you want to do something, do it. Um, the second is like ask for what you want. And you will, I, I've in my life and career have been always surprised by how generous people are and how willing they are to help if you simply ask. And especially if you make your ask clear and say, this is exactly what I want. Because that means that something that seems big to you can actually be totally doable to people. But all right, I want to take the next step because very specifically what stood out to me um, about your first or the zine that I saw. And so you at this point, you've been doing zines for, did you say seven years? Something like that. Um, what was the name of the zine again that you were doing at the time? It was called Hating Life. That was it, Hating Life. Which was not a reflection of how I felt. It was just, it's the name of a song by this death metal band called Grave. Right. And I just thought it sounded cool. Okay. This is how, I, like, I first I met you and I was a little like, I don't know, uneasy is, I, I, uneasy or something really struck me about the way that you were engaging. And definitely it seemed to me like there was something going on, like behind the scenes that you were really analyzing everything around you. Next, I get this zine. I forget how I got it. I probably got it from Todd. And I remember reading it and thinking, wow, like this guy's kind of a jerk, but I kind well, of- wrong. Yeah. But, but I also remember thinking, but I like it. It's not like, it wasn't like, and I, I, won't, I won't put words in your mouth. This is the way I felt about it. It had a tongue-in-cheek-ishness about it that- was actually kind of, seemed to me kind of like awesome. And if you could look at it, if you were someone who like was prone to being provoked by something, being like this person's a jerk or we're trying to laugh at someone, when in reality, I thought you were looking at something and just trying to bring some light to it, enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, just being silly. Yeah, and like I loved that zine and I looked forward to it. every time I got one, I loved it. And I would always feel like part of me would get a little provoked by it, but like, oh, I can't believe he said that. But then I'd let it sink in and then I'd be like, actually, that's kind of awesome. And those, like, I can't remember how many issues I saw, but I mean, I always remember the interview with Dillinger Escape Plan as being like, <laughs> literally one of the funniest things I've ever read in my life. And ironically, we live down the street from him now and we see him all the time. <laughs> I, like, I won't get into what I thought about it was so funny, but it was so cool uh, that stood out to me. So there was this idea of being a little bit provocative that was in there, but it wasn't like stupid provocative. It wasn't saying something just to get a reaction, or at least that was my take of it. It was kind of like an analytical kind of smart provocative that was intended to bring light to something. Especially, so basically, I invented vice is what you're saying. A, a little bit. Basically, basically yeah. invented vice. No, but like what I loved about it is like, cause you know, punk and hardcore can be like almost like overtly serious sometimes. And, it, and very traditionalist. Yeah. So, and like very rulesy, like punk is extremely yeah. rulesy. And I, I liked that you like, were just poking fun at it and it was cool. So for me, that was my first standout about you was like, you're very analytical and that you had a willingness to be provocative, but it was like a kind of a smart kind of provocative. Well, it's interesting to me that the thing that I have realized is the most provocative in the world of punk and probably in society in general is to praise things that other people don't like, mm -hmm. which is so funny. Like I remember back then, I like for example, I really like Three Eleven, mm -hmm. which is not allowed in punk. And now it, now it is though, so, to some extent, yes. Thank, thanks to Turnstile. Yeah, right. So I would praise, say, Three Eleven or Blink One Eighty Two, or and who I actually legitimately love Three Eleven, 
praise things that were, you know, heresy to praise. And that's what really made people angry, which I always thought was so funny. I understand if someone if someone is putting down a thing that you love, you know, it's somewhat justified to be upset about that because it's like, hey, man, like, you know, you don't I don't bring your negative energy into this thing that I enjoy. But to be angered by someone bringing positive energy into something is it's just so funny to me. It just speaks to just a, an interesting facet of human psychology and in particular the kind of people that are drawn to punk and hardcore. And, you know, as I like to say, you don't get into bands called like hate breed, death threat, and terror because everything's cool. <laughs> totally. <man. laughs> you know, totally. so the, the, the people who self-select to be into the scene, especially our version of it, which is like, you know, the real kind of super deep uh, end of the pool, the people who choose to be part of that, there's, there's something up with them in some way or another. And so those, they're oftentimes especially emotional. Yeah, and, and I also give you the flip side to the coin that I Myself believe... Myself included, by the way. Oh, totally, totally. And uh, I'll give you the flip side to that coin that seems like it's uh, from an opposite direction, but I think it's actually the same thing, but just uh, you're seeking something else. So you mentioned like death threat, hate breed, terror. Um, Why well, also then think of bands like Instead or Youth of Today or Seven Seconds? Boy, they made people angry. They they totally made people angry. They made people furious. People, oh yeah, people were. I remember people being so angry about Youth of Today, which for anybody who's listening was a positive, a hundred percent like positive hardcore band. Their message was just all about being a positive, healthy person and taking care of yourself and stuff. And people were enraged by it. Lost their minds and still lose, <laughs> still lose their minds. Yeah. The the thing that stands out to me is both for me come from the same place. That things aren't okay. Like that's how you find that music and you just kind of find the one that plays to your mindset and, and kind of your, also your aesthetic. So some people dive into kind of a terror, death threat, hate breed, and some people dive into a youth a day instead kind of vibe. I mean, I clearly went more with the seven seconds kind of instead youth of day. But the thing is, you can also just like both. And I actually like almost equally like a lot of different kind of music, but it all comes from the same place. It's Did you know hate. that I have two hate breed tattoos? I did know that about you. I, I really like, that feels good to me. <laughs> that feels really good. Um, but like the idea here, it's like nobody's getting into punk and hardcore because everything's okay. And it doesn't mean they've got a bad home life. It could mean a whole variety of things. But sure. people are getting into punk and hardcore for a reason. And as we get into that, uh, I want to talk about like how the ideas that we have about whether or not we can function just in a normal society without something with punk and how that interferes with the business world or doesn't. Yeah. But before we get into that, so we got Hating Life here in Seattle. And um, at this point, are you working in the corporate world yet? I was trying to, but I had not pulled it off yet. Okay. So at some point you moved from Seattle. Well, I moved when I was 18. I moved to Cleveland for a couple of years and then I moved back to Seattle and then I moved to New York, where I lasted for a year, and I said, I hate this place. And then I went to school in Cincinnati because the University of Cincinnati has a really good design program, which is what I originally went to school for. Uh, and then I ended up getting a job at Abercrombie and Fitch, which is in Columbus. So I inadvertently uh, ended up living in Ohio for, I think, about 12 years in total. Wow. Okay. And while you were there, that's when you started more of your online, what would be almost like an online scene. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I think it was, I mean, I did a few different blogs, but 
uh, the one that ended up getting traction was one I started in 2008 that was like about old metal. Um, and we just, a couple of friends and I just kind of did it for fun and it ended up getting, we just did it to amuse each other and it, it ended up getting, I mean, it wasn't like the biggest thing in the world, but it was like pretty popular for the time. I mean, I realized that everybody in every band and label and stuff read it, um, which kind of shocked me. And I guess that's another interesting dynamic of punk and hardcore is that so many of these things are started just to scratch your own itch or do something you know for you and your six friends and end up having you know potentially a global impact not that my things had a global impact but other people's did you know i don't think anybody thought minor threat was gonna change the world mm-hmm. but it did well i'm gonna challenge you there so i mean the metal blogger remind me of the name again uh, Metal Inquisition. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> I loved Metal Inquisition. I totally read it. And uh, of course, then it did lead you to stuff you will hate. Yes. All right. So like, I want to I wanna touch base on these because it's taking you from the written format. Yep. But you never stopped being a creator. You had right. to create. You had to communicate. And now you're starting to do it online. And you're starting to understand the power of communicating online. Yep. So- Tell me about when you first really realized like, oh, there's actually something to what I'm doing here. Uh, in regards to online stuff? Yeah. Um, yeah, probably with Metal Inquisition. I don't remember specifically like who it was, but I don't know. I probably got an email from like somebody at Century Media or something like that that was like, oh, hey, I liked your article I wrote. You wrote about such and such. I was like, oh, there's people that are reading this that aren't my immediate friends. Uh, which just I now I would never do anything without the explicit goal of growing it as big as I can. But at that time, even then, I had no commercial kind of goals at all for it. Um, so tell us about stuff you will hate. Uh, well, that's a a blog that I did that was really really just all about that idea of praising things that I like that other people don't like. I remember uh, I specifically had a conversation with a friend of mine. One day, I think we went to like King's Island or something, this amusement park. And I was like, you know, I should start a blog where I just write about stuff I like that other people hate. And without missing a beat, he said, well, you'll never run out of content. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'd lost, like we'd lost touch. We, you know, we hadn't spoken to you in years. And then I knew about Metal Inquisition, but then Stuff You Will Hate came up. Yeah. True to its name, everything you wrote about, I absolutely hated (laughs) Right. But two things brought me back. A, it's like, you know, I always, always like to follow whatever you wrote because it was just well put together and always thought provoking. And B, it was like, I really do hate this stuff. Like, I can't believe sure. this guy that I know who has really good taste likes this but utter I don't. But I garbage. don't have good taste. <laughs> Tell me about that. I just, whatever people with quote unquote good taste like, at least in music, uh, this is not true of other things, but in, in regards to music, whatever the people with quote unquote good taste like, I tend to not like. And that's not like some overt contrarian thing. I just, I don't like it. You know, yeah. I don't like Fugazi. Never did. The first time I heard Fugazi, I thought it was a joke that one of my friends made because Ian was such a bad singer. I legitimately thought it was something one of my friends made like for a joke. How do you feel about Embrace? Uh, I think I've only listened to it once. Oh my God. <laughs> in like 1994 or something. <laughs> Whew, 
All right. That's spicy. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, um, I was super drawn to stuff you'll hate and I'd yeah. go in and out of it. Cause sometimes I would just get burnt on it. Be like, this is just sure. too much. I can't believe this guy is talking about this band. And sometimes I couldn't decide if you were just doing it just to be provocative. No. And in hindsight, by the way, I was right about all that stuff. Mm -hmm. All that stuff I wrote about 10 years ago that I said was important and interesting and cool now, because it takes time for people to come around is all validated. Like, totally. I was right. You were 100% right. And I remember people like debating the stuff that you're writing and, and maybe not even some people not knowing, knowing yeah. you personally and being like, did you ever go on that website? Stuff you will hate. And there's two things that stood out to me. It was like, damn, like Finn is really developing a lot of reach here. And this is before I was ever thinking about like websites or anything yeah. like that or blogs having that kind of impact. Part of me was like, wow, he's, he's really got a lot of reach. And the other thing I was like, he's really tapped into something that people really hate this stuff, but they yes. love talking about it. They love being in the conversation. And so this went on for a while, but then eventually you wrap that up as well. Yeah. And how come? Yeah. In like 2014, I was just didn't have anything more to say. Um, and, you know, when I was writing a lot of the stuff, I was in an absolutely horrible place personally. Uh, and so my, um, the motivations and like the, the things that people wanted me to say were just no longer in me. Uh, so I've, I've always been more of somebody to, you know, quit on top than like keep phoning it in. And I just not in that headspace anymore. And I was, and I'm glad I'm not because I definitely would have died if I still was. Um, so just said, time to wrap this one up. Okay. And then what, what was next for you? Uh, in terms of what? Well, what did you do next creatively? Like, what was your next output? Because the thing, again, that stands out to me is like, there's always like a heavy focus on creating and communicating. Yeah. Like you're always putting forward something towards so people. The, the next thing I did was actually not my own thing. I got uh, hired at Creative Live, which is an online education company for creative folks, uh, primarily photographers, graphic designers, people like that. Uh, when I got there, which was 2013, uh, I, it, it's a venture-backed startup. At the time, when I joined, I want to say we had maybe 20 people, and it ended up growing to 120 pretty quickly. We raised like $60 million in total from some real top-notch investors like Greylock and Social Capital and Google Ventures and stuff. So I got to see part of that. And there was just a hallway conversation once and and I think maybe uh, this is a good a good example of bringing your whole self to work. Um, there was a hallway conversation about the previous CEO was like, "Hey, should we start doing music classes? Should we teach people because they teach people how to do photography? Should we teach people how to make music?" Saying to someone else, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, I should, but we don't. I, I don't know how do we do that." And I was and I know a lot of producers, uh, and so I was like, "Well, I, actually, I could do that. I know a lot of producers, like." He's like, okay, cool, do it. And I did. And uh, so that was really my focus for the next couple of years was growing that business, which I took from nothing. And I, you know, as a, like every other startup, you know, when you're in that sort of GM role at a 20 person startup, you're kind of doing everything and you don't have a lot of resources. There's no game plan, but I did it all just the same as I would do a zine and grew it to seven figures in revenue in maybe a year and a half or something like that. Uh, so that was kind of my focus of my creative output at that time was building that business. All right. And then we come to the punk rock MBA. Is that correct? Yep. So I started that in 2015. 
just as like a Facebook group. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really do much with it uh, for quite a while. I didn't do anything with it at all in like all of 2016 because I was busy working on other stuff. I took a bunch of freelance work, marketing work, A, to build my skills and B, to pay off some debt. So I didn't do anything. I made the decision. I'm not going to do anything creative in 2016. I'm just going to focus on building my skills and making some money. Uh, And I did that. And then in 2017, uh, the end of 2017, I quit my job at Creative Live and took another job and started doing YouTube in September of 2017. Uh, And I did a video, at least one video a week for nine months before I got anywhere because YouTube is a grind. Uh, And then eventually I figured out what worked and it took off. And, you know, since then it's just been kind of up and to the right ever since then, which is amazing. And I'm very grateful for. Yeah. And it's been so cool to watch too, because it really has basically been in the past couple of years that you've seen greater and greater and greater success. Yeah. Which is, which is cool because, you know, uh, I don't know if you feel this way, but I'm always kind of afraid, like, it's not like when you're 21 and, and something doesn't go your way or you haven't figured something out. It's like, you still have the rest of your life ahead of you. And it's like, all right, well, if I don't figure it out this year, that's fine because there's still next year. You know, as we get older, that <laughs> it no longer feels that way, even though in reality, you know, we still have lots of years ahead of us. But there's a little bit of a sense of urgency and, a, and at least for me, a fear that like, oh, is it, did I just have my last good year? You know, like, am I, am I washed up now? Am I done? Was that it? Um, and so for me to have that kind of inflection point, you know, I was 39 when I started it didn't get real traction until I was 40, uh, I think, or maybe I was 38, 39, whatever, but old by YouTube standards, uh, to have an inflection point at that point in my career was a huge relief, to be honest, you know, because I didn't, I think it's very important to manage your career such that you have those inflection points. And if you have a corporate career, you know, if you want to be at Amazon for 25 years, those inflection, there's a, there's a path for those inflection points. It's not guaranteed that you're going to hit them, but there's a path for it. Uh, but when you are doing your own thing, they're not guaranteed. And, uh, I was experiencing some real anxiety about that. So the fact that I was able to make that inflection point happen was just a tremendous relief to me. Yeah. Well, and this is, a, I believe, a good place for us to start introducing more our topic. Uh, and it was important for me, to, for our audience to really hear your story here. Because this isn't a, a line of sight story. It's not like you went to high school, then went to college, then finished college and said, this is where I'm going. I never once thought about what I wanted to be when I grow up until I was like 20. Right. Like it never crossed, like not a single time when I was in high school did I have a conversation with anybody about career or financial goals or anything. It never even crossed my mind. Yeah. But your whole story, like, it makes sense in retrospect now. It totally Like does. when you and I sit back, but like when you were working, when you were in Ohio and working at Abercrombie & Fitch, like there was probably moments where you're like, what the hell, what am I doing? Like, where am I going? Like, what is my, yeah. what's, what's going on in my life? Yeah. And this is where I want to start getting into. The guy that I met in line at El Corazon to the guy that you are today, it makes complete and perfect sense to me where you're at today and your tenacity and your guts and your courage and your hard work to get there. But along the way, there's probably lots of times where you're like, there's something wrong with me. Like, you know, yeah. So let's, let's (laughs) talk about that. 
Well, but let's talk about that, man. Like what I'm interested in is when you first started trying to make a go of adult life, like real life. Yeah. Did you well, feel I was 34? <laughs> yeah, but like, let's take it even back. Like back yeah. when I first met you, like when you first said like, Hey, I'm trying to like enter into the corporate world or whatever. Yeah. Did you feel like you could be who you were? Uh, I did at first because it never, you know, my mom was so encouraging, uh, in a good way and a bad way. It just never crossed my mind that I had to have a filter at all. Okay. And that's why you picked up on something about me at that age. As I said, so many just loudmouth, stupid things, some of which were right or funny, uh, and some of which were just dumb mm -hmm. because I, I just never, I never learned that I needed to have a filter. Mm -hmm. So at that age, it did not occur to me that I couldn't be myself. But then as I got older, uh, I spotted a pattern of shooting myself in the foot by saying dumb things. Yeah. And I was like, oh, maybe I need to, you know, um, make some adjustments here and maybe maybe don't be yourself all the time mm -hmm. uh, is the way I thought about it. Yeah. And so there was a period in my, t in, in my life where I definitely didn't feel like I could both be myself and be successful. Um, well, one of the most powerful things that I heard, uh, I don't, it might've been on, on punk rock NBA. I, I can't remember. Uh, the singer of half off uh, did an interview and he said, you know, one of the hardest things that I, I had to learn as an adult was growing up in punk and hardcore, you get all these messages that like, what you believe in matters and your ideas matter and voice your opinion and speak out. And then you get into the real world and you realize it's like, yeah, what, what you believe does matter, but not every situation calls for you to share what you believe. And the importance of being able to really understand what you believe, but pick and choose when you share it and then how you share it. And uh, as he was talking about it, like the idea that like I had to learn through really terrible situations and terrible things that I caused myself when to talk and when not to talk, but to always know what I believe. And I'm, I'm kind of like now like adding to what he said, but I thought it was like one of the most powerful things for me because as a professional, I never had a filter. I'd go in and say whatever. And, you know, I always kind of went from the like, speak out, say, speak your mind, but very much like you, I had, uh, early challenges with that in my career where it was like, sometimes it was probably great they were like thank you for saying something like you're saying what everyone in the room is thinking but they wouldn't say it yes well and and other it, times it was like you shouldn't have said that there was actually a really predictable pattern it was come in and i was the guy who'd say whatever it was and he'd be said i'd get praised a lot for it and people would love it until they didn't love it anymore right and then as soon as they didn't love it there was a sharp decline in the relationship and I either 100 percent felt that exact pattern Okay. So how did you start to find your balance of bringing your whole self to work, but making sure bringing your whole self to work worked for both you and also for your audience? Uh, well, I mean, that is honestly a, a daily, that's something I still work on every day. Mm -hmm. And the way I look at it is if if I can't bring my my whole self to work, there's a, a couple. There's either internal or external factors for that, and I would work on those separately. For example, if saying how I really feel uh, ends up turning a lot of people off or um, causing relationship issues, then you know maybe 
maybe I'm feeling and thinking things that are not super healthy and maybe I need to change who I am. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it could also be that they are not the right people for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I kind of decouple whether, you know, basically whether it's my fault or their fault, uh, I, I decouple those things. And if it's their fault, then I need to leave. Uh, if it's my fault, then I need to change. And it's usually a little bit of both of those things, or or oftentimes a little bit of both of those things. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. It, it does. It, you know, one of the ways that I've been, I've looked at it, and and just like you, like I'm still like learning and growing. Uh, there's something that I firmly believe in. You got to be who you are. Yes. But being who you are doesn't mean being the lazy version of yourself. It means about being the best version of yourself. And this is what I mean by that. If I'm who I am in general, that encompasses all of my behaviors. If I'm the best version of myself, it's me bringing all of my attributes while also holding by trying to hold my deficits at bay in a thoughtful way. So what I mean by that is like, I'm super passionate. Like I'm a really, really passionate guy. Uh, and I can get people to put energy into lots of things, but are they things that actually are good for everyone or are they just good for me? When I'm at my best self, I can rally people to put energy into things that's good for a company, good for everyone. When I'm at my worst self, I can get people to put energy into things that only really matter to me and that I want. And that maybe those other people are like, oh, this is bullshit. I don't want to be a part of this, but I feel like I kind of have to. Twisted their arm into it. Yeah. So there's a difference between inspiring people towards something that actually matters versus manipulating people into doing something they don't actually want to do. And so like that's a version of my best self versus my, my worst self. And so my ability to get people energized on something or, or move people in a direction is... 100% one of my greatest strengths. But my best self is inspiring people towards something that actually matters. And my worst self is inspiring people towards something that just feeds my ego, is arrogant, is short-sighted, or anything like that. And that negotiation of why am I actually doing something is about, for me, the discussion of, is this your best self or your, or your worst self? Well, I don't know if this is what you're trying to say exactly, but to me, the answer is that, like, it's not a matter of, I mean, there's times where it's just stuff a sock in your mouth and don't say the thing that you're saying, but it's more about like, I genuinely don't want to be that person. It's not about censoring myself. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't like it that I'm, that, that I have a desire to like act this way. I, I want to like change and be a better person so that when I am being myself in a, in a sort of relaxed, natural, authentic way, like it works. You know, and going back to like Youth of Today and stuff, that's why I really picked up on that band in the first place is because like they have a song called Time to Forgive, which is not a very, you know, hardcore thing to write a song about. You know, you're supposed to write a song about taking revenge on the people that like did you wrong, <laughs> you know, but, you know, even when I was 14, I've I have always to my credit, I have always known that I need to work on these things. And it, it takes me longer to figure them out than it probably should. But even at 14, I was like, yeah, I don't want to be angry and like hateful and like have a grudge. Yeah. yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it took a long time to get rid of that feeling. But I guess to me, if, if there's this situation where like being yourself causes problems, then you got to work on yourself. So totally. Most and of the time. 
Well, and this is actually what I mean, like really specifically by uh, greater self and lesser self. I, I, I'm going to talk about the difference, what I believe fundamentally, the difference between authenticity and preferences. And because you use the word authenticity, I actually feel people are largely full of shit when they say they're being authentic. I think what people really mean is they're just doing what feels good to them, which is mm -hmm. the preference. And I feel that people operate from a place of preference very often. And some people, what they prefer kind of just magically lines up with what actually is, is the right thing to do. But very often, I look at preference as being our lesser selves. And I'll give you an example. And there's nothing wrong with that lesser self. So I'll give you an example. Like, I prefer, I've got a wicked sweet tooth, and I love candy. And I prefer to eat candy every single day. I would love to eat candy every day. And when I do that, I definitely start having things that happen when you eat candy is that I start forming an expectation about it. And like, you know, kind of my addictive tendencies are like, well, of course I deserve candy every day. And in fact, I deserve candy multiple times every day. I start putting on weight, I get unhealthy. And that's the pattern I go down. Whereas my greater self would be like, it's totally fine to have candy once in a while. Just do that at the right times. So when I think of preference of authenticity, I think that preference basically feels good all the time, but it's not always the right thing to do. Where authenticity doesn't always feel good, but it's the right thing to do every time. As an example, like nobody gets up in the morning and is like, oh, I can't wait to go have that terrible conversation. So if you have to go have a tough conversation with someone, I don't think a lot of people in the day are like, yes, I get to go have this tough conversation. But you want to go in and do it well. You want to do it skillfully. You want to do it in a way where both parties feel heard and there's like, an exchange that leads to some kind of resolution. That's about doing something you don't like to do, but doing it the right way. That to me is authenticity. And in fact, I believe that anything on this planet can become authentic to us as long as we work hard enough at it, as long as it doesn't cross a moral or an ethical boundary. Well, it's interesting that there's, I think, kind of a perception that changing who you are or changing your behavior is inauthentic. Right. Know? Like, why are you changing just to please them? It's like, no, I'm changing to please myself. Totally. And to be more effective and to, and to follow the thing that I want to do. Right. So you, you just hit on something that I think is really important in this discussion. Like when we're talking about bringing your whole self to work, as a coach, I'm never saying, oh, just do whatever you think, man, however you feel inside, do that thing. <laughs> no, not at all. It's about looking at the spectrum of ways of being with people and figuring out what's the best way to show up with people and then doing your version of that. And when I talk about this, I find people, they typically get pretty reactive. It's like, so you're saying I should be able to like move and change with people. Yeah. Just right. Like, like if you go to, if you go, if you're dancing and they're playing like a salsa song. Nope. I'm doing Foxtrot. I'm, right. I'm going to do me. And if you can't handle it, that's your problem. Well, this whole idea of bringing your whole self to work, people seem to land on the idea of being like, well, I should just be able to act however I want to act. Well, no, because we, what we call that is total insanity. <laughs> we don't you know, want to have that. I've never had that idea in my head. And I think it's because uh, my dad was a corrections officer. Mm. And uh, for the majority of his career, he was a counselor. Mm. And a counselor in prison is not like, okay, tell me your problems. Like, it's, it's, more along the lines of a guidance counselor, for example, he would say, well, I see you have this parole hearing coming up in nine months if you want your best shot. Uh, make sure you go to this job training program. Make sure you go to this anger management course. I see you've got a couple infractions for X. Make sure you don't get more of those. And then the inmate can either say like, okay, cool, I'll do that. Or more likely they'll go, F you, 
buddy. Like, you can't tell me what to do, blah, blah, blah. And he'd go, all right, well, you can like it or not, but I'm just telling you this is the way it is. Totally, Next. man. And so from an early age, I was like, oh, I, I can do whatever I want. I just have to live with the consequences of that. And that's why I've never had the sort of silly idea that, like, it's all about me and that I have some sort of right to just act however I want and other people need to tolerate that. Well, so this is what's really interesting to me in the workplace, um, because I believe bringing your whole self to work requires the most intense discipline out of anything and mm -hmm. requires people to work really hard at bringing their, hat, their preferences in line with an ability to show up authentically. And I'll give you an example. Just yesterday, I was working uh, with someone. It's my first call with a new client. And he was talking about performance culture. And he was like, I don't like it when people are, you know, they're full of shit and they, you know, they're willing to let poor results stand. I was like, great. So I agree with you. So what are your behaviors? And he kept going back to, well, I think it's people we should never allow that. We, and he, every time I said, tell me about your behaviors, yeah, right. he went back to I didn't to ask the, you what you think. I asked you about your behaviors. And then when we got to the behaviors, he's like, oh, yeah, I can be like super argumentative and dismissive and like, you know, like people find me intimidating. And I was like, right. No, I never made my expectations clear. They should know. But what you believe in is accurate. Your path to it yep. is uh, it's not accessible to people. So it's about keeping your belief in there. That's what you believe. It's your approach that we have to change. And that's where I find people struggle because he prefers to yell or be angry or be dismissive. It's like the lazy approach because it's what's easy for him. Yeah. Instead, keep your belief, but change up your approach. And that's what I believe is at the center of bringing your whole self to work. I mean, keep my, what you believe. My goal is always to like, I mean, I guess fundamentally I'm a creator because my situations of work have always been like, I want to make X thing happen. Yes. Like a new product or change our process or whatever it is. And for me, I guess just the way, you know, I'm naturally wired, the hard skills part has always come very easily to me. Yeah. That's just sort of a given for me. The soft skills part is the struggle. And I've realized that that was the barrier between like the, the tactical, like operational plan of how to get this thing to happen has always been very clear to me easily. But getting other people to buy into it was what I realized I was horrible at. And so I it's not a matter of like, oh, I have to swallow my pride and learn how to get along with people because that's just the way the stupid corporate world works. It's more like I was mortified that I was horrible at that. I was like, oh my God, I suck at this. And I'm totally ineffective because even though I have the game plan, I absolutely suck shit at getting other people to work with me on it. Okay, but the thing you just hit on, and this is for me the crux of the matter, being who you really are at work, you have a decision point. Either, oh, this is the corporate world, and they're all, you know, like, they're all just like kissing each other's ass, da-da-da. You can take that approach, or you could take the approach of, oh, no, like, what I believe is right, and, but my approach is not going to work here, and I yep. need to have a greater discipline in being good at that. And what I, when I talk about authenticity, it's about that other approach, but doing it as you, like really who you are, rather than doing some, um, you know, like some like puppet show of trying to act like other people. Totally. And so that's what I'm interested in with you because you've had like this really like interesting career where you've, you've tried a different, th a bunch of different things. You've been successful at each one, but you're, it's like, you're constantly moving forward. You're constantly seeking. Now you've landed on a place where literally what you do is about who you are. 
but it took a lot of work to get there. Yes, and lots of luck and good fortune and all that stuff. So as much as I wish I could say I had some master plan the whole time, it's not that at all. It's like, do you ever hear about like Dick Tracy, the old comic strip where, you know, they asked like, how did you come up with the idea that Dick Tracy was going to get himself out of that, you know, pit at the bottom of the ocean by doing that with his wristwatch and the lighter? And the guy was like, oh, I had no idea. I wrote him into that box at the bottom of the ocean. I was like, oh, crap, how am I going to get him out of this one? Uh, and in hindsight, it was a masterful storyline, but he didn't have that going into it. So uh, if I've ended up in a good place, it was not because I had some master plan. It's just because I kind of scrambled and figured it out along the way. Yeah, but so let me ask you this specifically. What did you have to change about your approach along the way that in the end allowed you to be more who you are in the workplace? Uh, a lot of things, but if I had to nail it down into one thing, it would be uh, anger management. Okay. Tell me about it. Uh, so you're putting your therapist hat on here. I am. <laughs> you're not going to invoice me for this, are you? <laughs> um, well, I just realized how many times, like almost always, the problem is that I would be in a situation in which the solution to the thing was very clear to me in an operational, tactical kind of sense. And I would get pissed off that other people either didn't understand or didn't agree with me or whatever. And I would get pissed off because I was right and they wouldn't just shut up and do what I knew we needed to do. And, and I realized that I was, you know, sabotaging myself by letting my emotions boil over and saying or doing something that made everybody be like, fuck that guy. Jesus, what's his problem? And then I lost their trust and support in that moment. And it's very hard to get that back once you've damaged it. And I just saw that as a pattern that that happened so many times that I was like, just dude, I, I have to stop. This is like really causing serious problems for me and making me totally ineffective in a team situation. So how did you change it? So you noticed the pattern, but how did you change it? I mean, it's just a, to me, a moment by moment decision of, you know, when I feel that, you know, it's like in the Looney Tunes when they would, the, the character would turn red and eventually when it got up to their face, the steam would come out of their ears. When I feel the, the red line rising, I just got to stop for a minute and hopefully I can make that feeling subside. But at the very least, do not communicate when you're in the danger zone. <laughs> you know, don't send that email. Don't speak up in the meeting. If you're feeling that way, just chill out for a minute and as I, I ask myself, like there's a couple of questions I ask myself, which I guess would boil into the uh, both both fall under the heading of kind of self awareness. For one, I ask myself, are you going to care about this in 30 seconds, let alone 30 minutes or 30 days? And almost always the answer is no. Mm -hmm. And if the answer is yes, okay, well then maybe this is worth having a strong opinion about. If the answer is yes, you're going to care about this in 30 days. Well, all right, that's one thing. Even then, I could probably still well. At, okay, so I have three things. Second is I imagine myself, you know, the TV test. I imagine like if I was watching myself, if I knew this was being recorded right now and I was watching this in front of a courtroom of people and the prosecuting attorney was like, see, look at this guy. How would I feel? Mm -hmm. And usually that instantly makes me go, oh, yeah, I would not be proud of people seeing me act that way. I, that's like instant kind of eject button. And the third thing that I realized is that I was expressing my opinions in a way that made them come across way more uh, harsh and intense than I intended. So like if you were to think about, you could grade the strength of an opinion on a scale of one to 10 with one being the mildest and 10 being the strongest. 
I was expressing them in a way that to me was a four, but it came off to other people as like an eight. And there are very few opinions that need to be expressed that intensely. And most of the time, people just find that kind of scary when you express an opinion that strongly. They're just like, whoa. And I didn't intend that, but I just realized my communication skills were, I was, I was inaccurately communicating the intensity of my opinion. So what I've learned is express it in the mildest way that I possibly can, and it will come across as strongly as it needs to. Because like a one to me is a four to other people, and that's usually fine. All right. So this, these like kind of strategies you've taken in this, you know, awareness, how's that helped you actually be who you are at work? How has that allowed you to bring who you really are into, into the workplace? Well, other people uh, would see me as an asshole and I don't think I'm an asshole. So the version of like my true self, I would hope is not an asshole. So to me, it's I, how I want people to see me is like a helpful nice person with good ideas that wants to work with other people to accomplish them. And uh, so really it's about like doing what I need to do to have people perceive me the way that I perceive myself or that I, that I want to be perceived. So um, I, I guess it's not so much about my um, actions as Am I presenting myself in the way that I want to be seen? Yeah. And man, I think that's just such a perfect way of capturing it. Not in a like Machiavellian calculating way. It's just like, oh, I'm like badly misrepresenting myself. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's a great way of capturing it because like very often when I talk to people about, you know, bringing who you are into work, um, I find there's like basically two kinds of barriers. There's kind of pre-existing barriers within the work environment that would be any kind of prejudice. And that prejudice could be something about like systematic, like prejudice, like racism, sexism, like transphobia or anything like that. But it can also be like things like people not liking how you dress. They don't, they don't like, you know, tattoos, whatever, whatever thing it is. You have a Southern accent or something. That's a big one. Right. Yeah. So there can be kind of like pre-existing environmental ones, but there could also be the ones that we bring in to the workplace. And I've experienced both. So like, it's always been really important for me to be like who I am at work. and the interesting thing is like the, where I started my career within uh, the therapy world. Um, the first boss that I worked with was from the punk scene. And uh, this was a person who was for the first few years of my career was responsible for my development. And he's not only from the punk scene, he's a friend of mine. And basically it was just like, you're fine as you are. And so I was and, like, and Man. in that context you were, well, it's interesting. Cause I like I worked in a very small team and we were, we were all super close. And it just seemed like I had this whole thing wrapped up. Like I totally knew how to be a professional. And I was in that place for five years. And when I went into my first different kind of work environment with the same boss, but in a new organization with a bigger team with people who I didn't know, it was a crash course in learning that mm. I was totally ill-equipped to be myself at work. Because it was the first time I was ever a boss and I wanted to just operate how I always operated, which was I say whatever I think. I'm a total like uninformed loudmouth with a lot of opinions. <laughs> and and those opinions are must be must be right. Yeah. And this kind of assumed virtue because I grew up in the punk scene. So I assume everything that I say is coming from the right place. So righteous. So righteous. But the worst thing was, man, is I did not know how to deal with people who thought I was full of shit. 
or didn't like me and didn't like my approach. And I had never experienced that professionally. And the first job I ever went to, I was a supervisor at a- Wait, I want to I ask something there. Mm -hmm. uh, is there a difference between you're full of shit and don't like your approach? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like to me, one of those implies that you are factually wrong, like an objective, mm -hmm. an objective error on your part. The other is a sub sounds subjective to me. Is that are those different things to you, or they they are different things, and they were both correct. And it was at this job that I actually, for the first time, realized that my approach was my approach was off. I didn't know how to be a good professional. I certainly didn't know how to be a boss. But I did the classic thing. Everyone else is wrong. My boss is wrong. The team was wrong. I was right. Like they just didn't get me. It was a bad organization. And the thing I failed there, like there's all sorts of mistakes I think people can make in their career, but I think the biggest mistake you cannot afford to make is really looking in the mirror and owning your shit and learning from it. And from that job, I learned actual 0% about myself. I, I had a bad experience and blamed it all on the organization. And that was my first experience of feeling like, well, I can't be who I am in the workplace, but really I was totally welcome to be who I was. It's just who I was was a, was a shithead. Right. Like, do you know the uh, the Vandal song, I've Got an Ape Drape? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a line in there I really like a lot. I don't give a damn because I am what I am, even if that's really, really bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, and so after that, I left that job and I went to my next job and I started to see that pattern that you and I talked about, which is like at first you're the person who says what needs to be said and that's celebrated until it's not. And that was my first real experience of being like, oh, maybe actually like my approach does suck and, and actually maybe I am full of shit. And I remember I was going through a, um, a really tough period in my life and I started to really understand the difference between bringing your whole self to work and being a jerk and mm -hmm. like a self-righteous jerk. But even then, so I did that job for a couple of years. It really wasn't until I was in my first coaching role uh, at a different organization that I really learned truly what it means to have a terrible boss, like a horrible boss, and to be truly in a bad work culture. And then I really realized it's like, oh, wow, I need to personally change. And doing that change was like hard. It took me a long time. But in doing was, was that- Was it because you had that moment where your boss was exhibiting the behaviors in yourself that were bad? Or what, what made you realize that? What I realized was I was with someone who was like fundamentally dishonest, like a truly dishonest, incredibly insecure boss, like really, really in one of those cartoon bosses yeah. where you're like, oh, people actually are like this. <laughs> uh, someone who'd grown up with, you know, the difference between someone who grows up with money and versus a rich kid. It was like a rich kid who was disconnected from, had never had the experience of not having $5. You know, being so poor, you don't have $5 yeah. and who also hadn't learned how to, um, how to navigate the power that's inherent with money and was just mean and petty and like, would say and do things where you're like, oh my God, people actually do these things. Right. And when I was in that position, I really realized like how full of shit I truly was. And in that, it was like my biggest learning about how to actually be myself at work because I had kind of like adopted all of these behaviors, which is just kind of saying and acting however I want it. And because I'm like a you know, pretty charismatic guy, well-spoken, 
workspaces would just allow me to do that until they hated me. And then I was like, nah, screw you. And mm -hmm. suddenly I was in this place where it was like, nobody cared about my education. Nobody cared around my charisma. Nobody cared about anything I do. All they cared about was how much money I helped the company make. And I was like, oh, I am so full of shit. And now that I've got this like little, this little thin veneer of like who I think I am pulled away, I have to really just focus on, on actually being who I am in the workplace. And it took me a lot, it took me like two or three years to really find the right combination. And that's in the end what set me up to do the company. Um, but I've really become interested in this idea of like not becoming a slave to your preference and really doing mm -hmm. the hard work it takes to be a good professional. That's a, that's a good way to put it, being a slave to your preference in this, you know, you're, you're addicted to uh, bad behavior in the same way as people get addicted to junk food, you know, to yeah. use your candy analogy. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to share one other wake up moment that I had um, because it is, I mean, it's embarrassing. I think I was 26 or something like that, like way older than I should have been to having to have this conversation. But my boss at the time at the design agency, he was like a old school, like, you know, he played like high school football, Ohio kind of guy, really, really like good human. Mm -hmm. But that kind of like old school, like uh, dick butt kiss kind of demeanor. He, I don't remember what I had done, but uh, I had ruffled some feathers and he pulled me aside and he's like, Finn, let me tell you something. I was like, uh, okay, what's that? And he's like, nobody gives a shit how good you are at your job. It just matters whether they like you or not. And I was like, <laughs> oh, God, that's true, isn't it? This is, uh-oh, <laughs> I've got some work to do. Totally, man. And so this whole idea, like being who you are, it's like, it's the most important thing, but that doesn't mean bring in all of your worst habits. It's yeah. like, how do you figure out how to be you while doing the things that allow who you are to be accessible to people, yeah. like people want to work with you. So you've, you've noticed, or you identified a few things that you've like, yeah, these were things that, that um, helped me change in, in a fundamental way. But what are the things about you and who you are that have made you a success in what you're doing now? Well, I think, you know, it's kind of the thing that you identified is just naturally I am an analytical person that I'm a systems thinker. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just fundamentally want anything that I'm looking at. I want to improve it and make it better. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that is why I'm an asset in any given situation is because, you know, if you plug me into this thing, I'm going to find a way to make it better. And especially at like smaller companies uh, or new teams, like that's a very valuable person to have. There's somebody just like, go over here and make this thing better. And I would say that that's fundamentally the thing that I am best at. Uh, and I also am comfortable challenging people's ideas. Uh, you know, all of this is with the caveat that we just talked about, that there's a right way to do that and a wrong way to do it, which I continually work on. But I would say those are the two things. Like I, what I'm good at is coming in, observing a system, figuring out a handful of ways that it can be better, and then, you know, creating an operational plan out of that that can put it into action. Um, so I'm going to make a reflection on you, you, if you don't mind. Yeah. You've changed a lot since I've known you and I've known you for a really long time at this point. So, and also we've known each other, but not super, super well. We've yeah. and say in recent years, I actually feel closer to you than I've ever felt in my life. We've, um, I go to Finn a lot for advice on like social media and how to build our brand. 
Um, I've noticed change. You seem a lot more settled in yourself. You seem less like there's less of a of a, an anxiousness or a sharp edge about you. You seem much more comfortable with who you are. Uh, well, that's because I'm a better person than I used to be. I mean, I was very off. I mean, I was never like a horrible person or something like that, but I was just very off-putting in a lot of situations and it doesn't feel good. So to to change like that requires a lot of hard work, a yeah. lot of reflection, a lot of vulnerability. Was it something that you did because you wanted to change or is it something you did because you had to change? So everything I just said about wanting to optimize any system that I see, I apply that same thing to myself. Mm. You know, if if this is, you know, to use engineering terms, if there's an objective function and the thing you're optimizing for is happiness. What are the various terms of this equations? This equation. What's the one with the biggest coefficient? And let's start there. Um, and I, I think I learned that. You know, my mom uh, was a, a very, you know, troubled person because she had a very difficult childhood. Parents died and blah 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 all this stuff. Uh, and she became an alcoholic. And as long as I can remember, she would spend literally hours every day, like very consciously working on addressing her flaws. She did, she was in AA. She did this other thing called A Course in Miracles uh, and some other stuff, which is how I learned about uh, Krishna's stuff before I ever heard Shelter or anything. Um, she would spend hours working on herself every day, tirelessly, as long as I can remember. Uh, and then my dad, being a corrections officer, like he didn't really need to work on himself exactly, but he worked on other people. Mm -hmm. uh, or sort of, you know, his thing is basically holding other people accountable. Uh, my mom held herself very accountable. My dad held other people accountable. Uh, and I think I was just, just born that way, you know, just wired to just constantly be taking inventory of myself and asking like, how can I be better where better is defined as acting in a way that makes me happier. So did you choose to change or did you have to change or was it kind of a combination? You don't have to do anything. No, but did you? No, you don't have to do it. No, I don't have to do anything. Mm -hmm. It's a choice, right? Just like that inmate doesn't have to go to that anger management class. He can tell my dad to F off and, mm -hmm. you know, go spend the rest of his life in prison. Like my actions, I, I am 100% in control of my actions, my mood, my temperament. Like, I mean, to the, you know, obviously we're biological creatures and brain chemistry is a factor and stuff, but I'm accountable for all that. I don't have to do anything. Mm -hmm. Um. So I'm going to share with you a little bit about the changes that I've made. Um, I remember I'd worked at this coaching company for a couple of years and I had this coworker named Gregor who was horrible, like just horrible, like bully, like really, really awful guy in the workplace. And actually I'd been there about a year. And I remember one of the things that really stood out to me about this guy was that he knew how to like kiss my boss's ass, like really, really, really well. And my boss loved to have his ass kissed. And, I remember always looking at that and thinking like, oh, that's like that corporate thing. I'm not going to do that. One day it just struck me. It's like, but this dude's making the gains here and I'm not going to kiss ass. Like, that's just not what I do, but I'm going to be less prickly. I'm going to be easier to work with. And I did some really simple things. I went out, I used to always like get all my suits and everything tailored to, to fit a certain way. Cause it was really important for me to come across as like a bit more of an edgy dude. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, that's just like some stupid ego stuff. Yeah. I don't want to do that anymore. And I went and got like suits that were just more fit with the time, the style of the time. I, so I went out and like invested in some suits. 
And I just focused on being less prickly and less difficult. And I remember my boss at the time was like, you know, you've made such a change in these past few months. It's like, clearly you bought like some clothes, you did this. And he's like, it's really like, really, I really appreciate it. And I remember thinking like, this small change that I made has suddenly given me my boss's ear. And I suddenly have way more influence than I, than I had before when I was just saying whatever I wanted to say and always pushing on, on my ideas. And the ideas that I was trying to push on were right. They were good ideas, but the, my approach with it was terrible. And it probably just made you a generally happier person to just not have that constant friction. I was less angry. Yeah. I was definitely less angry. But the interesting thing was, when it goes to this, I was being outmaneuvered by someone who knew how to like basically play the ego game, who knew how to massage someone's ego and would unabashedly do it. And I mm -hmm. remember like just being like, oh my God, I, like, I actually am trained in psychology and I'm being outgunned by this like total fool. But who's the fool? Right, because I was being led by my preference. So I made some very simple changes that were easy to make. I, basically, I was like, I'll be less of a jerk. <laughs> and, and I'll dress in a way that's like easier for my boss to do. So you sold out. Now, I know. It's such a wild way of thinking about it. Yeah. The thing is, it actually allowed me to be more who I am, like less this like prickly dude. So there were some changes. I didn't have to make them. I made mm -hmm. them because I chose to make them. But I will tell you about a change I had to make. So when I started Cadence, um, I remember thinking, I'm in the most vulnerable spot right now because clients have so much choice. They could pick from any company. And I'm just the little guy now. And in fact, not only am I a little guy, I want to build up a company. I had to make like crazy personal changes, like on deep, deep levels, like professional changes, personal changes to be successful. And those required a huge amount of work and they still require a huge amount of work. But in doing those, I feel like I kind of found out who I really am. I, instead of being like pretending to be authentic, like this is who I am with this like pre-baked idea, I actually found out who I was by being vulnerable, trying new things, like challenging myself, like putting down some of these like armaments that I'd carried yeah. in my whole professional career. And it was the scariest shit I've ever done, man. And, and in fact, we reconnected during this time where I was going through like hell. Like I was going I remember through that, real, yeah. real personal time. I feel like so much more myself now, probably more than I've ever felt, both personally and professionally. But it took me letting go of a ton of stuff that I'd been carrying around. It's basically been like, this is the truth about me. When in reality, it was just this like weird weight that I was carrying around. Yeah, it's funny how like, it's like, Aram, you don't even have to do anything. Just let go of this thing. Yeah. So I'm like, but I don't want to. Totally, man. And, and I don't even know why I'm carrying it. Right, I'm scared. How do you relate to that yourself? Well, I think, I mean, if what you're saying is that I seem like a more comfortable, happy person now, I mean, I am. Uh, and, and I think it's because I'm a lot closer to the person that I always wanted to be. I mean, I remember when I was 15 and I first heard Gorilla Biscuits, you know, there's, they have that song, Things We Say, which is about basically hurting people's feelings by saying dumb shit, mm -hmm. um, and ruining your relationships with them. And I remember like sitting on my bed, reading to the lyrics to that song and be like, oh my God, I just did that to this person, you know, and just that that was this pattern in my life. And I don't think that happens very much anymore, I hope. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I'm just happier because I feel like I conquered a lot of the just stupid behavioral, like dumb patterns of behavior that used to sabotage me that I, I don't think they do anymore, at least not as much. 
uh, and you know, I'm a happier person because of that is just what it comes down to is I put in a fucking massive amount of work every single day for the past 30 years and it got me somewhere. Well, man, and that's like, for me, one of the most important things is when we talk about like being who we really are at work, that's also about letting go of your idea of who you are. Yes. Yes. That's a good way to put it. That's exactly what it is. It's like, well, you can decide that you are this person and this is the way you do things. You're never going to change. And cool. That's your choice. Or you can say, well, maybe I don't want to be that anymore. Maybe, maybe who I am is different tomorrow than it is today. And that that is authentic and healthy. Yeah, man. And like, you know, I, I think about the professionals I know who are like the happiest and who are just successful and there's more of an ease about them. There's less of a sense of like having to hold on to things and it be a certain way and more yeah. of an ease of just being like, you know, I, I can just, I can go with the flow. I can get it. And I'm not saying everyone has to be like that. I will say for me, I've, I really realize I'm quite a rigid thinker or I have previously mm -hmm. been a rigid thinker. And I thought I was like really open. But really what it was, was I was just trying to impose my will on different situations. Oh, I'm a hundred percent that and letting go of the illusion of control is the magic there to me. Cause I never had control. Yeah. I, I, I wanted, I had this foolish idea, you know, to use another one of these Krishna terms, the veil of Maya deluded me into thinking that I had the ability to control the situation. I never did. Mm -hmm. And trying to force it just makes everybody, including me, unhappy and pissed off. And now understanding that I don't have control and that that's fine uh, is liberating. It's like, well, I'm going to do what I can. And if it goes my way, great. If it doesn't, well, what are you going to do? Yeah. And, you know, as we're getting closer to the end of the interview, one of the things I want to encourage people to think about is being who we are and really bringing our whole selves to work has a lot to do with that sense of like kind of surrendering expectations of how people interact with you, surrendering control, surrendering any kind of rigidity, and really just like being able to be in the mix and find out who you really are in that. And that does sound like some hippy dippy stuff, but I'd say it, I'm 45 and a half at this point, And I probably only really figured out who I really am in the past couple of years and who I really am. I'm able to do that every day at work. And it's like a huge relief. But that was done through having to really learn how to like break a lot of very poor interpersonal habits and also like surrender my sense of control without surrendering my sense of direction. And I don't think any of that, that may sound like hippy dippy stuff to some people, but really, and I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but really that is like tactical nitty gritty operational stuff. Mm. This is not like pie in the sky, like two guys sitting around navel gazing. It's like, okay. We're just getting down to the more basic, basic, basic essence of what it takes to be effective. Like, first you think it's about understanding how to use this piece of software. Then you're like, oh, well, actually, it's about understanding the concept behind that software. And then you're like, oh, well, actually, it's understanding how this team works. And then at the end of all of this, you realize that actually it's just about getting along with other people. That is the most, like, tactically, operationally useful skill in the world. Yeah. Getting along with other people. What we're taught in grade school or in yeah. kindergarten is literally the most important skill in business. Yeah. If, and, and the reason why I'm so focused on that is because if you don't get that right, nothing else matters. And if you do get that right, everything else will fall into place.
I, I couldn't agree more. So as we're rounding up here, um, I want to first ask you, is there anything that you want to add in? Uh, yes. I really like your mindset and skill set framework. So anybody that's listening to this that is not familiar with that, um, pay attention to Aram's other content where he's talked about that. You could maybe point people at something specific. I don't know what that would be, but I think that's a really useful framework that anybody who wants to be more effective should really operate from that as a place of first principles, I think. Thanks. And just to be clear for everyone, uh, the way that I tease it up is skill set is typically what people think about when they're looking at development. And that's fine. You can like look at YouTube videos, you can read books, but the reason, and you can do all that, but then you can also fail to execute on any of these. And the reason you do that is because you haven't changed the way you think. Changing the way you think is the most important thing to getting better at anything. And that changing the way you think is what allows you to actually use the skills that you've learned. So I can learn how to run. That's not going to turn me into someone who does a marathon. I have to change the way that I think. Uh, thanks. Then anything else? No. I mean, I, I could talk about this stuff all day long. So thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. Hopefully something in our hour and a half long conversation here was helpful. I would like to think that it was pearls of wisdom one after the other. It could have just been a couple old guys rambling. I don't know. I'll leave it to the audience to decide. I, I love this. This is exactly what I was hoping out of the discussion. Can I do a, can I do a couple of, uh, of choices for you here? Uh, absolutely. Okay. Um, West Coast Hardcore or East Coast Hardcore? Well, ideologically, West Coast, uh, sonically, East Coast. I'm more like a marauder kind of guy, okay. sonically. Cleveland or New York, hardcore? Uh, New York. New York or Boston? New York. Straight edge or not straight edge? Uh, music? Mm -hmm. I'd go straight edge. Okay. Uh, youth of Today or Warzone? Youth of Today, 100%. I, I, youth of Today would win a face-off against every band in my book except Shelter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, I can't believe that there'd be a better note to end on there. Uh, Youth of Today, Minor Threat, and Bad Brains being my three probably favorite bands of all time. I think it's a great way to end. Uh, hey, Finn, thank you so much. This was, um, I just find you to be such an inspirational guy, and I really appreciate the work that you've done in being who you are, because who you are has made a huge difference to me, both as a friend and a colleague. So thanks so much for sharing your time today. Same to you. All right, man. I'll talk to you later. And Dave, drop the beat. I hope everyone enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Uh, you know, really being who we are, I firmly believe has a lot to do with letting go of our preconceived notions of who we're supposed to be. You know, growing up in the punk scene, I have this real idea of like who I am, like I'm this good person, I'm this virtuous person. I'm going to tell you, like that stuff was just a blinder for me. I ended up positioning myself like such a jerk so many times, but my intent was always good. And the things that I wanted to have happen typically were actually pretty good as well. It was all about my approach and my approach is what I had to change. So being who we are isn't about acting however we want to act. It's about figuring out what is it in our approach that we need to change so that we can really be of service and really connect with people. So what I'm going to encourage everyone to do today is to really think, is who I am today in the workplace who I really want to be? And if not, 
what changes in your approach, in your circle, in your environment, do you need to make to get there? Thanks so much, everyone, and we'll see you next time on One Step Beyond.